Vodka. 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 Hey everyone, you are listening to Amber Love from AmberUnmasked.com, and today's episode of Vodka O'Clock was recorded live at the 2016 Steampunk World's Fair. This episode is about Edgar Allan Poe and the way that mental illness, uh, back then simply referred to as other types of names like madness and lunacy, uh, the way that Edgar Allan Poe worked that into his stories and sort of a general idea of uh, the way that it was handled at that time. So uh, it's presented by Chris Sempner, who is the curator of the Poe Museum. He is a wonderful speaker. I got to see him last year as well. So uh, I think that if you follow along with Poe and other Gothic literature, uh, maybe this isn't completely new for you, but I think that the presentation was great. Unfortunately, if you weren't there, then you missed out on the great slideshow because uh, there were various illustrations about the types of devices that were used originally to uh, like restrain patients and then uh, at least you know Mr. Sepner at this point uh, he showed these devices and then explained hey you know and they finally started taking a different approach and treating patients with kindness and hey that worked a whole lot better than torture so um, it was very similar in that regard to uh, the Victorian Asylums episode that I recorded last year, but uh, that again was presented by a different person. So I think if you listen to both, you'll get different information uh, about a very uh, interesting topic. Hopefully that's not a triggering topic, um, but just putting that out there in case. So we might not realize that we've come such a long way in terms of treatment of mental health and, uh, you know, it's one of those subject areas that really became a, a stigma because of Victorian literature, where the asylum and the mental patient were just horror fiction fodder. And it still happens today, it, it absolutely does, but I think we've made progress in that regard. And I know that, um, you know, like one of the best sitcoms, one of the most award-winning sitcoms of all time, Modern Family, uh, they do Halloween episodes every year, and apparently there was, um, you know, some backlash about one of their Halloween episodes where the Dunphys fix up their haunted house. They, you know, they changed their house into a haunted house and every year is a theme. And so the one year they did do a sort of uh, horrific asylum, you know, mental patient theme and it upset people. So, you know, I think that these are areas where, you know, maybe as writers, they're not aware of the stigma. And uh, I think most people are talking about things more now, especially with social media being what it is these days. So uh, without further ado, give a listen to Chris Sempner from the Poe Museum talking about Poe and madness. And don't forget that if you appreciate this sort of coverage, you can just go to patreon.com slash Amber Unmasked to sponsor the show and the website, amberunmasked.com. And I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Everyone, I'm Chris Sitner. I'm the curator over at the Garland Poe Museum in Richmond, and we've got a little Poe room in down the hall in case you want to get buried alive or you can watch the <laughs> Got all sorts of good ways for you to die in there. Has anybody played the Wheel of Misfortune yet? Okay, how'd you all die? from the Attic Nation. That's a sad story. It's one of Poe's love stories. That's why it's so sad. Star-crossed lovers and one commits suicide and the other commits suicide at the same time. Now I got you good and depressed. <laughs> now we'll get you into the Poe mood with a, a little Poe reading. Nervous. Dreadfully, dreadfully nervous. I have been nervous. Why do you say I'm nervous? This ease has sharpened my senses, not dulled, not destroyed. Above all things was the sense of hearing acute. I heard all things. 
things in heaven and earth. I heard many things in hell. How then am I mad? Hearken. See, observe how healthily, how calmly my tale to tell. You guys know that one? Okay. Well, I think you were first. <laughs> so you get a pull mustache if you like one. <laughs> and some of you were probably here for the last session, so this might be a slightly earlier time period than the last session. You guys remember when Poe was born? It was 1809. Nobody gets a Poe mustache. <laughs> So I gotta keep these other ones. Okay. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> you can wear it anyway if you want. It'll look just like Poe from now on. We get lots of extra Poe mustaches around the museum. We actually did a Poe birthday party where all the guests got their own Poe mustache to wear. <laughs> we couldn't afford 200 Poe impersonators, so we just dressed all the guests up like that. <laughs> But now I'm here to talk about Poe and Madness. And I start out with the Telltale Heart because that's one of the great examples of Poe's tales of madness. And it's these tales of psychological terror that really influenced a lot of later writers and filmmakers, including Alfred Hitchcock, who said the reason he made suspense films is because he so loved reading Poe's works. And he said that Poe introduced this first modern theme in literature, that of the disintegration of personality. And if you read The Telltale Heart, for instance, it begins with a fellow who's just a normal guy who loves animals, but by the time the thing's over, he's plucking out cat's eyes, he's hanging up from trees, he's, he's burying an ax in his wife's brain. That's one of the ways to die on our wheel of misfortune, by the way. But Poe wasn't the first one to address mental illness or insanity in his works, and Shakespeare's a good example. And outside of this, Cervantes, this. But it really got, mental illness really became very interesting in Poe's day. They really got interested in opening mental hospitals throughout the United States and really developed a lot more research into what caused the different forms of insanity. But this is a famous mental hospital in England. It's Bethlehem Royal, yeah, Bethlehem Royal Hospital, or Bedlam. And here's some mental patients and an asylum from Goya. And here's another famous from Goya. This is in the Meadows Museum over in Fort Worth, Texas. So artists of this time, the early 19th century, were fascinated with mental illness and insanity. And just before Poe's time, we started opening mental hospitals in America. Now, do you, you remember the first hospital open in America? Yeah, nobody remembers that one. It was opened in Henricus in Virginia in 1619 and then got wiped out three years later by an attack from unfriendly natives. But then in the 1750s, they opened the Pennsylvania Hospital. And it devoted some of its space to the care of mental illness. And in its charter, it says it's because lunatics are running wild and hurting people. So they decided they need a place to put them. And then by the 1780s, they opened the first hospital in the United States devoted specifically to the care of mental illness. And that was the Eastern State Mental Hospital in Virginia, out in Williamsburg. So Poe was born not too long after that, in 1809. And this is somebody that he would have known from his hometown of Richmond. This is actually John Marshall's wife, Polly. And she's said to have gone insane. In fact, one of Thomas Jefferson's daughters wrote a letter saying, have you, have you heard about John Marshall's wife, she's gone insane. So she's confined to her home. One of the best cures they had back then was the rest cure. They would just keep you at home and make sure you're protected from loud noises, bright colors, anything distracting. There was a barking dog that was just causing too much trouble. So John Marshall, the Chief Justice of the United States, he wrote his neighbor a letter and said, could you keep your, your dogs barking down? It's disturbing my wife. 
Now, we don't know exactly what was wrong with her. It seems just from what they described, she might have just been suffering from major depression, but they thought she'd just gone insane, so needed to be protected from herself. And her husband, as I mentioned, he was the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States, a pretty prominent fellow, but because he kept her kind of locked up, he had to go and do the shopping for himself, for the family, and do a lot of the household tasks that usually women would have done. And this is a home of another one of our founding fathers. This is just outside Richmond. This is the home of Patrick Henry. And his first wife, Sarah Shelton, went insane. And if you ever had the chance to visit his home, Scotchtown, you can go down here. This is the basement. And he set up the basement so he could keep his wife protected. And just like with Polly Marshall, he had somebody watch over her 24-7, make sure she didn't hurt herself or hurt anybody else. And supposedly the basement is still haunted by her spirit. So you ought to check out Scotchtown if you get the chance. And this is the woman Poe called the first purely ideal love of my soul. He met her when he was 14 years old and said she was so beautiful. He could hardly speak, he could hardly breathe, he almost fainted right at her feet. So you imagine what happened to her. She went insane and died. They said it was exhaustion from the mania. He was just 15 years old when she died, and this really affected him. He wrote his poem to Helen to her. He thought she was Helen of Troy, the most beautiful woman ever lived. And even after he got married, he used to take his wife up to Shaco Hill Cemetery and say, that's the grave of my Helen there. It said that when he was a boy, he'd keep visuals at her grave sometimes. And it really wouldn't have worked out. You know, when he met her, he was 14, she was 31, she was his best friend's mother. This is Charles Fino Hoffman. He was one of Poe's contemporaries, a poet just like Poe. And when this fellow Rufus Griswold came out with the first major anthology of American poetry in 1842, he included representative poems from all America's greatest poets. And he only included three of Poe's poems. So after that, Poe just made a living making fun of Griswold, <laughs> trashing him, travel country giving talks where he made fun of him, wrote reviews making fun of Griswold. They did an episode of Drunk History about it. <laughs> but Charles Fino Hoffman here, he got 45 of his poems in that book. So Griswold really loved Hoffman's poetry, but by the 1840s, he went insane, and he was confined to a mental hospital for the remaining decades of his life. So there's a lot of mental illness at this time, and hospitals are starting to spring up around the country. So this is the Eastern State Hospital in Virginia, and they have a reconstruction of it that's still, you can still go and visit it. But this, and if you were committed in the 1780s, this is what you would have seen. That's pretty much your life is over. This is it by the 1740s, the dramatically grown. And they established a Western State Hospital out in the western part of Virginia. But by the turn of the century, by about 1800, there are lots of exposés. Former patients or really inmates of these hospitals are starting to escape and they're describing the horrible conditions under which they live. And there's a movement starting in France. There's this fellow, Philippe Pinel. He's published about 1814. He's decided that we need to reform these hospitals and really try to cure these people, not just lock them up, not just restrain them. But here's one of the great cures they had back then. This is the Utica crib. If you won't stay in bed, they lock you up in this little crib. And there's a lady right there. You can see her head, and she's just locked up there. But people would be locked up for years. This is one developed by Benjamin Rush, who was one of our first great doctors in the United States. It's the tranquilizer chair. You won't hold still. This chair will keep you still and tranquilize you and get your fluids all in line. One of the theories they had is the problem with it, if you're sick or if you're showing mental illness, your four humors aren't quite in line. They aren't quite balanced. You need your blood, your phlegm, your yellow bile, your black bile. You have too much black bile, you could be melancholic. This was about, about 1800 here. 
And to give you an idea of how long you'd stay in this chair, there's a little bucket underneath it. And then you had this up top, this restrains your head, keeps your head still and make sure you look just straight ahead. And these are some of these restraints that they're selling on the market here just to keep people from hurting themselves, an old straight jacket. But they decide that maybe the problems you have too much blood, they could actually drain some of your blood. This is an instrument here for draining blood. And you see there's a lady having some blood drain. She's acting a little bit too, too sanguine, so maybe let's release some of her blood. Well, this is a nice cure they had. Benjamin Rush developed what are called heroic treatments, and they're supposed to create really instant treatments to cure your mental illness. This is someone who just won't calm down. It's called the spread eagle cure. You see they're holding his limbs, spread eagle, and holding him upside down, pouring water in his face. They're waterboarding him. And then after that, they slap him in solitary confinement. And here's another bloodletting. They're letting some blood in his ankle there. Also, if maybe the trouble's too much bile, they might give you some medicines to make you purge your system, might give you an enema. Or if you're having too much pus, they might blister you so you can get rid of some of that extra pus. But restraints are one of the real common solutions there. And of course, here's trepanning. And let's see if maybe the problem is we can extract the part of the brain that's causing the trouble. And they found, even back in ancient times, there's evidence of trepanning. That they found skulls, primitive cultures that have incisions made and that actually appear to have healed. So you imagine this, these people had holes cut in their brains and the skulls are actually starting to heal back over time. And this is an old version of electroshock therapy. They could, maybe, maybe the electricity could help to get your fluids in line. There's a theory called animal magnetism that all beings had magnetic energy traveling through them and maybe you just need to get the magnetism in line. But here's a scene, this is from an expose of the horrible conditions under which people are living. The lady's apparently murdered her child. Now she goes to the asylum. She's been beating, and now she goes to the asylum. Everybody's insane. And the asylums are getting overcrowded. And this person appears to be maybe throwing their urine at the visitors. You can see in the walls, in the windows, people are coming to gawk at the patients. You could pay admission, and you could go tour the mental hospital. And in Poe's day, that was something that's pretty common. You could go gawk at the patients. Until in France they started to reform. This is Philippe Pinel. He's, he's really an advocate for the prisoners and their rights, and he's trying to reform the practices, the overcrowding, these restraints. And also the Quakers got involved. The Quaker woman had died in a mental hospital in England, so in England and America, the Quakers started opening Friends Hospitals. There was one in Pennsylvania, the Friends Hospital, and they were in rural areas. And they gave you what are called moral treatments. Instead of these physical, heroic treatments, they're giving you moral treatments. The idea was that everybody had an inner light. You just need to get in touch with it. And if you could really get in touch with that inner light inside you, then it could cure you of whatever illness from which you were suffering. And part of the treatments were you had chores you had to do. You were living as part of a family, and you had to function as part of this family, and you had to do your chores, and you had to socialize. Some of these things had museums and lectures, so you could go attend your asylum's museum. And, and instead of these people being restrained, they're just kept in beds. They're being attended to with kindness. And one of the great symbols of the moral hospitals was the lunatics ball. They would have dances for the patients. So here's a lunatic ball. Here's another better image. And people were fascinated with the lunatics ball and with lunatics concerts. And sometimes the patients and the doctors would dance together and people thought, well, now you can't really tell who's who, who's the patient, who's the doctor. 
And here's an old cartoon of some of these lunatics in their lunatic ball all dressed up in a masquerade. So Poe decided he wanted to write a story about these latest treatments, and it's a story called The System of Dr. Tar and Professor Feather. Mm. It's about this fellow who's traveling to France, and he wants to see the latest treatments in this brand new mental hospital, but he's having trouble getting anybody to take him there. And he hears it's this brand new system. It's the system of Dr. Tar and Professor Feather, and he goes to this mental hospital, and and he sits down to dinner with everybody, but the strangest thing is one of the ladies there thinks she's the Queen of England, another one thinks he's a teapot, somebody else thinks they're a big lump of cheese. And he can't figure out, well, how's this treatment working? These are the doctors and they're all insane, but you can tell the, the ending is basically the patients have overrun the asylum and locked up all the doctors. And this narrator, he can't tell the difference. <laughs> So here's a, another illustration for the system of Dr. Tarr and Professor Feather. Uh, one of them thinks they're a chicken, so you've got somebody going, cluck, 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 and somebody else thinks there's a teapot, and they keep trying to pour themselves, and then there's a guy who thinks he's cheese. Does anybody recognize this guy? Well, this is Horace Walpole. And in 17, in the, about 1769, he wrote the first <coughs> Gothic romance, the first Gothic novel, The Castle of Otranto. And Gothic tales usually were set long ago in a kingdom far away in a haunted castle, a family curse. And that was the prototype for generations. And by Poe's day, these Gothic tales are starting to be old hat. In Poe's day, people were getting more interested in mental illness. And here's Theodore Jericho, the French artist who's painted a mad woman they call the rascal. This is a great painting right here. You can't really tell, but this is called the mad woman. Have you, has anybody seen Twin Peaks? This is the original log lady. She's holding a log, and she put a little baby bonnet on it and dressed up in baby's clothes. So Poe decided to write a story on this theme, and he wrote about one of the mental conditions they knew of at the time called monomania. And that's where you really get obsessed with one thing, you're focused on one thing. And there's a fellow named Aegis who said he's so monomaniacal that he can see a spot on the wall, he'll stare at it for hours and lose all track of time. Or he'll see a shadow and he'll go into a self-induced trance thinking about that shadow. And one day he sees his wife bare and icy smiling and becomes obsessed with her teeth, fixated on her teeth. But this is a woman in Poe's story. So what happens to her? Yep, she wastes away and dies, and Aegis goes to his chamber, and he doesn't seem to care that much. He's still fascinated with her precious, pearly white teeth. He can't stop thinking about her teeth. He goes into a self-induced trance, dreaming of her teeth. He loses all track of time. He vaguely remembers nightmares that he can't seem to place. He, he vaguely remembers hearing screams, but he doesn't snap out of it until one of his servants comes to the room, starts banging on the door, says, snap out of it, wake up. We accidentally buried your wife alive. And we heard her screaming in the cemetery. We rushed out there to rescue her. By the time we got there, someone else had already dug her up. At that point, Aegis, he wakes up from his trance as he stands. He knocks over this little box on his table. And guess what? <laughs> Tumbles out. Yeah, 32 little bloody white teeth. It's great. We did a performance of this at the Poe Museum. At the end, we threw teeth at everybody. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's good. Good screaming. <laughs> and that, that's about the experience people have with the story. When he published it, it was 1835 in a magazine down in Richmond, Virginia called The Southern Literary Messenger. And he almost got fired for publishing this. His boss told me, told him that, you know, women are going to have nightmares, children are going to turn aberrant, you need to tone this down, but Poe told him, trust me, this is what's going to sell, the more you annoy and offend and upset people, the more they're going to buy the magazine, yep, that's what sells, and he increased the circulation of this magazine seven times in the first year, both the most popular journal in the South, established himself a national reputation just by grossing out and offending people. <laughs> 
So he knew what he was doing, but the story is called Berenice, if you ever get a chance to read it. Even though I've just ruined the ending for you. And 1835 is also the same year that Nikolai Gogol published The Diary of a Madman over in Russia. So you can see there's this international movement to incorporate the tales of mental illness into people's stories. They're fascinated with it. And there's new sciences coming up, trying to understand what's causing these mental illnesses, how can we observe them, what are the symptoms of them. And there's still operating on this assumption that a lot of the problem has to do with you having your four humors out of balance. And maybe that shows up in your face. Maybe that shows up in the shape of your skull. So here is somebody who's lymphatic. So he's got too much lymph. Here's somebody sanguine. This one is nervous. You can see his nervousness. And this one is bilbus. And this is the new science of phrenology. And they're trying to discover how people's facial shapes, so physiognomy is part of it, this, the study of the shape of their faces, and they also had some, some problems that you couldn't do anything about. They said if you were Irish, that your face was very dog-like, and you're, you weren't really quite as much of a human as the English. So you can see diagrams they drew up in the magazines and the textbooks of the time. So if you're Irish, you know, you're just in trouble. Poe is Irish. And because of this new study, that's why Theodore Jericho, in about 1820, did these studies of mental patients. And this one he called the rascal, and this guy right here is a kleptomaniac. And they're trying to discover how these different illnesses are impacting the face of the sufferer, but even they could study the eyes. So an eye like this shows that you have courage, determination, strength, and a choleric temper. This one has less courage for some reason, but they have more wisdom and less determination. And this one has deep observation, shyness, greater geniality than number two. And this one has a disdain for triviality, superficiality, sanguine, phlegmatic temper, and less geniality than number three. And they came up with charts. So this is a phrenological chart, and you could tell based on the shape of your skull how your personality was affected by it. So if you had, this is the region of ideality here, so that showed you had great idealism, and parts of the brain showed that you had a bad temper. Walt Whitman is one who loved his phrenology chart, and he actually published it. So you get one of Walt Whitman's books and he would publish his phrenology chart in the front. <laughs> and here's a great head. This will show you, this is, if you have a big bump right here, that's friendship, so you might be a good person here. This is destructiveness, so feel right over your, your ear. If you have a big bump right here, then you're probably pretty destructive. <laughs> Let's see. There's combativeness is around here somewhere. Behind the ear. There you go, combativeness. And look, it's two people fighting there. So if you have a big bump right there, then you just you can't help it. You're just a jerk. And let's see, this one right here. is continuity, self-esteem, firmness, veneration. Here's that ideality there. And Poe said he had a large bump of ideality. But Poe had a really large forehead with large temples, so he said it was because his poetic genius was showing through in his skull. And this is a portrait of Poe from about 1850, so it's just after his death. And someone did a phrenological study of him based on old portraits. And here's what they said in 1850. His phrenological development combined with the fiery intensity of his temperament served to explain many of the eccentricities of this remarkable man. He inherited 
and sublimated embodiment all of the organization that his mother possessed, together with all that unearthly intensity and ethereality which her profession as an actress awakened. So that's a long way of saying he was messed up because his mother was an actress. <laughs> you could tell that in his skull, huh? Yeah, you could tell in his skull. <laughs> Later, some scientists studied this skull late they disinterred, and they said, this is a skull of a very kind and benevolent man. He's maybe a priest. You know who he was? No, the Marquis de Sade. <laughs> but if you ever go to Philadelphia in the Mutter Museum, there's this great display of skulls. And under each skull, it tells you what that person did for a living and when they died. and. And you can use that to see if maybe you can tell based on everybody's skulls what kind of person they were. Or maybe if they were Irish. <laughs> and Poe incorporated these details into his stories. And this is an illustration for the fall of the House of Usher. So here Poe is starting with the Gothic tradition of the faraway castle, this old rotten crumbling castle. But then he modernizes the story. He starts to focus on one character, Roderick Usher, and his physiognomy describes his thin lips, his pale, translucent skin, his large eyes, his fine, thin hair, and these came right out of a phrenological textbook for the nervous temperament. So Poe is looking at the latest science or pseudoscience today and incorporating those details into his stories, trying to make them more realistic. It's like today's science fiction writers might try to take real scientific details and add them to their stories to make their science fiction more realistic. He's doing that with his horror stories. So there's Vincent Price as Roderick Usher, and he dyed his hair for this role so he can make sure his fine and translucent hair. And this is his sister. Madeline Usher. This is from the 1928 silent film. You can find this on YouTube. It's one directed by Watson and Weber. And this is the most recent one. This is from Extraordinary Tales. But it's a great study of this personality, this guy who's sensitive to light and sound and color. He can only hear certain instruments. Porphyria, and they looked back at this and said, this is a textbook case of Porphyria. So Poe's so accurate in his description of this character that they've actually diagnosed him based on Poe's descriptions. And that name, Usher, this is Mrs. Usher. She is one of the actresses who performed with Poe's parents. Remember his mother was an actress? So Luke Usher and his wife performed alongside them and briefly took care of the Poe children right after Poe's mother died before Poe ended up moving to the Allens, getting his middle name. And they had twins, a son and daughter, who went insane. So that might have been an inspiration for the twins, son and daughter of the ushers in the story of the Fall House of Usher. And another one of Poe's great influences was he went to the University of Virginia. This is out in Charlottesville, and he went there very in the early stages of his development, and it was a revolutionary new university that had just been founded by Thomas Jefferson. Poe was only the second class to ever attend. And something that was really weird and really unusual about it is that right here, in the center of it, you didn't have a chapel. That's the library. The Rotunda was the library for the school. It was the first secular school in America. So it's the idea we'll get religion out of the school and just focus on useful learning and the arts. Jefferson didn't want to focus on theology or anything. He didn't consider useful for political life. And Jefferson also had the ideas that, you know, most people are kind of good that if you trust students to take care of themselves, that They'll function and they'll live successfully with the, the faculty on campus and everyone will get along and be a happy, smiley place. But imagine what happens when you take a bunch of 17-year-old boys from the wealthiest families in Virginia 
and put them in this little village in the mountains. <laughs> oh yeah, check their bump first. But Poe's letters home describe just the sight of seeing them build that iconic rotunda. He describes what it's like seeing the first books being brought into that rotunda. And he describes looking outside his dorm room. His dorm room was right over here on the West Range. So imagine the view he saw when he looked outside his dorm room. He said he looked out there and he saw two students fighting, and then one of them started biting the other one in the arm, just bit him over and over again from the shoulder down to the elbow. So many times he got to get a chunk of flesh the size of a hand amputated from his arm. That's the kind of letters he wrote home to his foster parents. And then he said, well, that boy got expelled. So if you ever go to the University of Virginia, you're not allowed to bite people. <laughs> you put a similar rotunda in the uh, Library of Congress. Yep. Yep. And this is actually the original rotunda. This one burned about 1907 and got replaced with a new one by Stanford White. And he also describes some of the other extracurricular activities there. He says that one of his another letter home to Mr. Allen, he says that he was watching two students playing cards and one got caught cheating at cards so the other one pulled out a rock and hit him in the head so the other guy pulled out a pistol and shot at him but missed the gun misfired so he didn't get expelled so you can shoot at people as long as the gun doesn't work <laughs> so Poe when he's looking for inspiration for his stories he wrote a story that was set in what he called the most dissolute school in Europe, and he based it on his experiences at University of Virginia, where his number was drinking, gambling, fighting, and he creates this character named William Wilson. He won't even tell you his real name. He says that his name is such a horrible, despicable, despised name that he's not even gonna tell it to you. So he's just gonna call it William Wilson. And wherever William Wilson goes, there's another fellow who coincidentally looks a lot like him, who's also named William Wilson, who always seems to get him into trouble. Whenever William Wilson, the first William Wilson's about to swindle somebody at cards, or cheat somebody out of their money, or concoct some nefarious scheme, the other William Wilson comes and whispers into people's ears and gets him revealed, gets him caught. So people have viewed this as him actually imagining he has this double follow around who always gets him in trouble because William Wilson the first is the really evil despicable one but maybe this is his conscience the good half of him that's always getting in trouble but the evil half thinks the good half is the evil one and this has been adapted several times in illustrations but also might have been an influence for this is Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson and Robert Louis Stevenson, by the way, read one of Poe's stories called King Pest and said, whoever wrote this story has ceased to be human. <laughs> but he borrowed on some of the themes. Also, Oscar Wilde for his picture of Dorian Gray. And this is an early German film, The Student of Prague, that's based on William Wilson. And then later, it was in the 1960s, there was a film version with some of the directors, I think Carl Vadim and Federico Fellini directed a film called Spirits of the Dead, and they had a segment based on William Wilson. There we go, it's got Fellini and Vadim, and it stars Jane Fonda and Terrence Stamp and Brigitte Bardot. But here's the scene from The Student of Prague, them at the gambling table, and the good William Wilson reveals what the evil William Wilson's doing. And now we're back to this idea of just how can you tell who's insane? Can you just see it in their face? What are the giveaways? And they thought that an insane person was somebody maybe who's ranting and raving, somebody who was very obviously insane. But remember, Poe made a living as a magazine writer. He reported on the latest sensational cases of the day, and there was the murder trial of a fellow named James Wood. He had just murdered his own family. He just shot his own children. So here's James Woods. So he had just violently shot and killed his own children. 
But now he was on trial, <laughs> claiming that he was not guilty by reason of insanity. But there's a lot of debate because he wasn't ranting or raving. In his testimony, he was very calm in everything he said. He told them without any real passion how he'd gone and purchased the gun for the very purpose of killing his daughter. So people weren't sure, is this guy really insane? Can he be insane sometimes and not insane other times? But Poe thought that this calmness was actually a symptom. How could he describe these really horrible things he'd done and be so calm? This must be a symptom of his insanity. And he decided to base his story, The Telltale Heart, on this famous murder trial. So in a way, James Woods <laughs> helped influence The Telltale Heart. And this is The Telltale Heart with Pluto the Black Cat from the Poe Museum. <laughs> but he was very interested in this idea that some people can be insane at some times, they can be temporarily insane, they can go back to long periods, even years of being perfectly sane and rational, they can go back and forth. And that's what you see in the black cat, this character who begins as very calm and rational, but gradually his personality breaks down. And it was Alfred Hitchcock, as I mentioned earlier, who said that that was the great theme for modern literature, and that's what really inspired him to make the kind of films he did. He also did another great story focusing on these ideas of mental illness and what drives us. Do we have another half of us that we don't understand this primitive urge? In The Black Cat, he describes how you just have this feeling to do the wrong thing just because it's the wrong thing. Could there be some kind of unconscious, uncontrollable, primitive desire that makes you do the wrong thing? Could there be, we didn't know about terms like the id or the ego or anything like that, but he's describing maybe there's something else driving us that's making us do the wrong thing for the reason of doing the wrong thing. He describes in the story about standing at the cliff. If you ever stood right at the edge of a cliff with your toes dangling over the edge of the cliff, and you start to feel this urge to jump, and you have to restrain yourself. You have to make sure you don't lean forward. You have to make sure you don't jump. It's that urge to self-destruction, and Poe called that the imp of the perverse, almost like there's a little imp living inside you that's making you destroy yourself, that's causing you to go towards your own destruction. So the imp of the perverse is another story that it's really worth the read. It's about this fellow who kills an old man just to do it, just because he knows it's the wrong thing to do. And then when he's gotten away with his crime, he gets himself caught just because that's the wrong thing to do, just because that's gonna get him punished. He's always doing the wrong thing just because it's the wrong thing, and it's almost like he can't help it. He's just driven to self-destruction. Uh, pardon? Yep, and Dostoevsky's another one who called Poe a really remarkable writer. So this is one of the great ways that Poe influenced later writers. He's writing about what is causing us to do the things we do, and what really makes us tick. And he's showing us that even someone who's really good and virtuous can have that little imp of the perverse inside of us that's making us do the wrong thing. <laughs> and also, later artists have been very interested in you know, what makes us work? What's the subconscious all about? What are these desires that we don't understand? And the surrealists, especially, were very interested in tapping in those primitive, automatic influences. They tried automatic writing and automatic poetry, even tried different visual art strategies. And Salvador Dali here tried to simulate madness. He had what he called the paranoid critical method which he used to try to compose some of his works. And one way he tried to get in touch with his subconscious mind, these misunderstood desires, was as he was about to go to sleep, he would hold a little spoon in his hand over top of a saucer. So the second he fell asleep, he dropped the spoon, and that would hit the saucer, wake him up, and then he would just record everything he'd just been dreaming. And recognize this guy? And Lovecraft here, he thought that one of the great things Poe did was he wrote about these conditions and these characters, but didn't judge them. In Poe's day, there were rules. 
The hero should prevail, the villain should be punished, virtue should be rewarded, villainy should suffer. But here in Postales, you have people who commit horrible atrocities and get away with it scot-free. We've got the cask of Amontillado. A fellow grips up a guy alive, leaves him there for dead. He's telling the story 50 years later, probably on his deathbed, and he's joking about it. It's a very humorous story. You should go back and reread it. There's all sorts of great jokes in there, like the fellows coughing and, and the murderers saying, oh no, you shouldn't go down there. You'll cough, you'll catch a cold and die. And, and the victim says, oh, it's just a cough. I shall not die of a cough. He says, you're very right. You will not die of a cough. <laughs> so this is why some of the writers of Poe's Day thought he was immoral. His stories weren't teaching you anything, they weren't edifying you, but Poe said they didn't have to. That a story had to make you feel something, it had to have an emotional impact on you. So if Poe scared you, or if he made you laugh, or he made you sad, that's what he's going for, this unified emotional effect. So Lovecraft called him the supreme short story writer of all time, and his great idol, because he just without worrying about the ethics behind these characters, the morals, he focused on what made them tick and what made them do the things they're doing. So that's the last slide, and I think we're, we still have time if you have any questions. Yep, we still have a couple minutes here if you have any questions. Do you have any? Okay. Now, I know a lot more women died. Yeah, I know there's one critic said that he killed off more women than Shakespeare. <laughs> but the thing is, he thought it was really poetic if a woman died. He said the theme of a beautiful young woman dying is a theme most ideally suited to poetry. Because it combined the most beautiful thing in the world with the most tragic all in one, beauty and death. And he thought the sole province of poetry was beauty. The whole purpose of a poem is to be beautiful. And whenever you contemplated beauty, it filled him with sorrow, so a beautiful poem had to be sad. So he thought that was the theme ideally suited to poetry, and then he took that theme and ran with it. You got Lenore and the Sleeper, Annabelle Lee and the Raven, to One in Paradise. But he's just thought, he explained in a, an essay called The Philosophy of Composition, this is just a very logical thing to do. You're trying to write a beautiful poem, this is how you do it. Because we don't say that James Cameron was insane because he wrote Titanic, but it's basically the same idea. It's sort of a badly written, badly acted movie, but the guy dies at the end. Does everybody like it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I mentioned this in Mother's Day, but I'm going to do this badly. It took them quite a while to really reform, and things got a little bit worse before they got better. Right. Can I ask you one question? Pope seemed to be more um, popular in France than he was here. Because almost everything that he had written was translated into French for very, very quickly. It seemed like the French knew better than the Americans. Yeah, the English love him. Alfred Lord Tennyson called him the literary glory of America and America's most original genius. But in France, we had Victor Hugo called him the prince of American literature. But in France, 
one of his great translators was Charles Belair, and he called him the divine madman drunkard. And that was a compliment coming from him. He thought he really relished this idea, this poet Bonzik, this mad poet who lived outside of society. And they, they idolized that idea of him being an outsider, a rebel. In America, they thought, well, that's just kind of scandalous. But in France, they really embraced that public image of him. And they also liked that idea of Poe writing poetry for the poem's sake, that a poem didn't exist to edify you. It existed just to be beautiful, just to be a great poem. And the French used the term art for art's sake. So Pope fit in right with what the French were doing, but didn't quite fit in with what the Americans were doing at the time. But The Raven was still a big hit on both sides of the Atlantic. Elizabeth Barrett Browning wrote to Poe saying that it created a fit terror and a sensation in England. Uh, it was popular. Yeah, this poem was popular on both sides of the Atlantic, but in France, just a few years after it was published here, one magazine, an editor published a story claiming he'd written it, another editor claiming he wrote it, published it in another magazine. So the first one sued the second one for plagiarism. And they had this sensational court case until a third editor came forward and said, Neither of you wrote that. Some American named Edgar Poe did. So all of a sudden, because of this great trial, Poe's a household name, and it helped that he set the Murders of the Morgue and the Purloining Letter and the Mystery of Murder Roger in Paris. So the French really just ate that up, but quickly they were translating his works. But the first of Poe's works to be translated into French was actually Woody Wilson. Uh, did you have a question back there? It's the Edgar Allan Poe Museum. And where is that open? It's in Richmond, Virginia. Oh, it's just on the other side of the lobby, right next to the room where they're playing cards. Okay, thank you. Definitely, we're just in Richmond. It's about five hours drive from here. Unless it's rush hour, then it's about ten hours drive. <laughs> Any other questions? Well, thanks for coming out today. As a reminder, that was Chris Sepner of the Poe Museum presenting a lecture on Poe and Madness from the Steampunk World's Fair. If you appreciate this coverage, don't forget to go to patreon.com slash where it's basically a perpetual tip jar, and I really appreciate that. You can find out more at amberunmasked.com, where there is more Steampunk World's Fair coverage, and of course, you can go to steampunkworldsfair.com. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.